0: Welcome to Get In The Herd, a podcast about addiction and recovery brought to you by the McShin Foundation. If you or a loved one are looking for real discussions about addiction, recovery, stigma, advocacy, and most importantly, hope, then stick around. Thanks for joining us. Now sit back and get ready for another great
1: episode of Get In The Herd.
2: Hello, folks. John also live here at the McShen Foundation in Richmond, Virginia. Today, we've got a wonderful show lined up. Before I get started, I just want to remind folks of Lillard's landscaping business. And uh, Adam supports us, so we want to support him. So if you need a great-looking lawn at a very affordable price with the, with a guy that's just the joy to work with, call Adam Miller at Lillard's Landscaping. Today, from Winchester, Virginia, i got Paul Thompson on my right. And uh, Andrea Wright, on my left, that'd be your right. no pun on words there, of course. That's right. But today we're going to have a good discussion about, you know, what's wrong with some of our drug laws and what we can do about it, hopefully. And these are two wonderful people in recovery, and I'm just going to let them introduce themselves, and we'll just jump right into it. So, Andrea, ladies first.
0: Yeah, I'm Andrea Wright. Uh, I've been in recovery for over 20 years myself. Good for you. Yeah, and... uh, have gained a lot of experience, both educationally and lived experience in recovery. Um, my background educational wise is got my undergraduate degree from George Mason in conflict resolution. We were just talking conflict
2: about Conflict Resolution. I could use a class in <laughs> that I'm
0: sure. <laughs> I can arrange that. Uh, I'll give you a discount. <laughs> and uh, got my master's in international criminology at the University of Sheffield in England and studied about uh, addiction, did all of my research on addiction, stigma of addiction, and compared the United States' punitive criminal justice system and criminalizing addiction to the decrim in Portugal.
2: Oh, well, good for you. And you work in the space now, too, right?
0: I do. I work in recovery field as a recovery consultant and recovery coach.
2: And you help people navigate challenges associated with contact with the criminal justice system. That's correct. Good for you. Put that good wisdom to work. Paul, what about you?
3: I'm Paul Thompson, and uh, I graduated from Washington Lee, undergrad in religion, and then got my JD there. Uh, Person in long-term recovery. I've been in recovery 10 years. And I work with Andrea as a recovery consultant also, work in a law firm um, and we we got the idea to be consultants for people who are charged with uh, mostly drug offenses, chronic relapsers wh- while we were here at McShin, mm-hmm. taking the um, peer recovery class together, so it's been a very interesting, so you got a little experience. So, uh, and, yeah. and you're a
2: former prosecutor, an elected yeah, was, Commonwealth elected
3: attorney. Yeah, elected Commonwealth attorney for sixteen years. Wow, man, that's a long time. You was on the other side, Yeah, when I first started in 1986, uh, they were the town was on the front page of the Washington Post with the crack
2: epidemic. Right, y'all just getting going good on the drug war. That's right. So you got to the benefit the build up on your side. Right. Then you find recovery, now you got to, you know, make up for your sins the rest of your life. That's and, correct. And Absolutely. good for you. man we got the right people here. <laughs> I'm excited about this. And uh and you're also a board member of the McShen Foundation and Andrea is an advisory council to the board and future board member we hope, you know. She has been invited and you'll see why at the end of the show today. So, before we get too deep, you know, we were talking about stigma a little bit while we were warming up here. And it's kind of odd. You know, we have an illness, a mental illness, substance use disorders. And I I think the stigma associated with it probably does about as much damage as the the drugs themselves. When you combine the stigma with improperly mitigated laws and policy, that's got to be nine-tenths of the problem drugs do to us, you know. Thoughts on stigma before we get going.
0: There's a lot of thoughts I have on stigma. I've written a lot about it. Um, Paul and I were just speaking about stigma actually over lunch today, and we were talking about it before. Stigma permeates the whole system, really. The you know the drug user, drug users are you know we of course they're still arrested here for using, for you know you're penalized for having that addiction. Um, And you have that stain on your record if you're convicted for the rest of your life, you know, if that happens. For somebody like myself, I can speak on my own experience as well in recovery. um, I've had numerous instances of stigma happening to me either early in recovery or even in the past 12 to 18 months after multiple years of recovery. Living, working in recovery, um, being a productive member of society like you read about. Um, that happens to me, and it happens to everyone that I've seen and worked with specifically in the criminal justice system. It uh, happens in their workplaces. happens in families. Families don't want to believe that someone has an illness, so they're continually stigmatized and don't want to help them and understand that. Uh, like someone else who has, you always hear somebody has cancer or diabetes. Uh, they're treated differently. You see it in the hospitals. If you go in the hospitals, it's happened to me. If I say I'm in recovery, and I'm honest about it, they look at me differently. Um, you get treated differently. You get treated plain plain differently. Plain and simple, man. Ain't it's no just plain and simple. You know, I had a job. I was talking about this 10 years ago. A job that I had, uh, I could not disclose anything about my personal life and recovery, even though it would help someone else. I was not yeah. allowed to do that. It would have hurt me.
2: So, Paul, stigma. How did it impact your? immediate life and, and, you know, let's go back just for the last few years. You well, know?
3: Let, let's talk about, we, we, we were discussing this at lunch, some of the new programs that you see in Virginia and around the country. Um, one of the uh, programs now is police officers get together as a team and they go with peer recovery uh, folks and they try to help addicts. They don't charge them. They give them a chance to go into recovery. And what we've seen is that a lot of folks with uh, the disease are so scared to cooperate and to uh, associate uh, with the, the authorities that they will not cooperate because of the stigma. They're afraid that they will be uh, looked at differently and uh, not. they don't get access to what we would consider to be decent uh, Services, and you know that that whole uh, atmosphere I think has uh, somewhat contaminated some of these programs and um, I'd like to see it changed and we what we were trying to do is compare what we're seeing in the changes now with Portugal, mm-hmm. which uh, you know they it's a lot more uh, fair uh, when they approach folks who are using. Uh, everybody gets treated the same. You don't have to tell them who your drug dealer is. You don't have to tell them how much you've used or you're, you just get the service. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really where we need to be. Headed. You know,
2: you know mm-hmm. I, I see this playing out day in and day out. I, I know there are a lot of decent people out there. There's a lot of decent um, law enforcement people, a lot of decent politicians, a lot of decent bureaucrats but there's not enough of them that can be a majority and make the difference. And, like, for example, somebody asked me the other day, okay, we want to start this USA flip movement, you know, flip, flip our drug policies from criminal justice to health care. And the recovering community, the recovering people, they, they're the vast majority of the successful people in recovery, the ones in the community, the ones that are going to build the capacity up, but yet the, the power to be... They look at us with disdain and disgust, and it plays out in their policy. That's clear. You know what I mean. So moving forward as a nation, you know, somehow we got to be treated equal. You know what I mean? You know, get rid of that stigma associated with this because, you know, Carol E. Egan, as you know, she said, "Why did the recovery movement fail?" I think it failed in part because of the stigma. I think I, I think people just aren't going to trust the process. You know, even though we represent the majority of the solution, the majority of the outcomes, you know, what's there not to trust? But I do want to remind our viewers today that uh, I'm running dark, we're all running dark, we don't have a screen so I can't shout out my guests when they pop up, I don't have access to questions but Todd's going to interrupt us if he ever gets a good question.
1: Yeah, you do have uh, Johnny Fab is on here and he said uh, stigma should be renamed to discrimination.
2: So, it, it is total discrimination. Yeah. I absolutely agree with that. Hey, Johnny, what's up, my yeah. brother? I'm going I'm to probably listen to you tomorrow night, I do believe. So anybody who don't know Johnny Fab, look him up on Facebook. You, you'll spend an hour watching his TikToks, man. He, he's like the best at it, man. <laughs> but, you know, we're going to um, you know, try to get our culture to, to switch their thinking. And I don't think we're getting a lot of help right now, you know, and I'll tell you another place stigma plays out, you know, like right now there's these big pharma lawsuits taking place, and I know there's a lot of victims out there, a lot of class action, you know, families that were destroyed, and these state attorney generals, they're fighting tooth and nail to, you know, get all that money all that funding that those people don't deserve it, you know whether it be a family member, a victim, a survivor our, our own elected officials don't even support us and, and think we're valuable, you know, the way I'm seeing yeah. it. And we just got to stop that. So first step, what can we do in Virginia that other states can mirror? That might be a first step action to get the USA to flip some of their policies and mirror Portugal's policies. I'll go to you, Andrea, since you're the scholar in the room.
0: Well, I think there's a lot of things that can be done to reduce that stigma, and I, the drug policy is a big place where I would start. I mean, it's a huge, huge roadblock that so many people.
2: Well, what about face. reclassifying drugs? I mean, how reclassifying. Hard I mean, I how? mean,
0: Paul might be able to speak to that better than me. Um, well, how do we get know, how, how do we a, get
2: user amounts reclassified? Get it off the felony schedule. How does that happen?
3: You have got to change the law. I mean. You know, we, we watch the uh, sort of baby steps this year with marijuana. Um, and I would say that I appreciate those steps because what we've noticed, John, is that when we go to court, when Andrea testifies as an expert witness in recovery, that the judges will stop the courtroom and quiet everything down so they can hear what she says. Because there's a lack of education about about what we do and the recovery community. And, you know, this this idea of stigma really in our with our people it starts in the rooms because it's anonymous. And so we're taught from the beginning of our room experience that it's anonymous. And so I can recall when some of these movie stars were coming out, like Joe Walsh, and saying, I got 12 steps to save my life. Now I can show up and play gigs. And I remember a lot of guys in the room saying that it was totally inappropriate. He should never speak about his recovery and his experience in the room. So a lot of things have to change. And for people that came out early publicly, like yourself, uh, once you get over it and you face the music, just like any other uh, group, uh, sexual survivor groups, whatever, And people can see that you're speaking about it, it breaks the ice and it's we're not going to get there overnight but the federal the federal government if the federal government can do an overhaul on criminal justice I think that would be the the best step we could take
2: yeah do do either you know the uh, the impact marijuana has on our criminal justice system by being illegal and not treated like alcohol
0: I mean, it has a huge impact. I'm not sure exactly the percentages.
2: What, you know, yeah,
0: huge, I mean, I, huge amount. And you know, just to go back a minute about the sti- the point on stigma, and to extrapolate further on that point, and to go with what Paul was saying. You know, the the thing about Portugal that pulled me in, and the reason I wanted to study it several years ago, and I went there to learn about it on the ground is because the stigma has been reduced there in the country as a whole. You so you re-
2: reduce the stigma first, and get the they, play.
0: The, yeah, so in the late 90s, there was 1% of the population in Portugal which were addicted to heroin. You know, After the revolution in 75, there was a dictatorship. It, it, you know, that was removed. Drugs started coming into the country more, um, and a lot of people became addicted to opiates. And that was an issue for Portugal. They were concerned about it as a country for their people. You know, 1%. We have multiple percent here right now that are addicted, and nothing's being done, overhauled. You know, there's no flip going on. So they went from spending 90% of their... You know, in their not dollars, but 90% of their uh, money was being spent on the criminal justice system, and then they turned it around and flipped it to 10%, and 90% went to the healthcare. So it was reclassified from you know a criminal justice issue. It wasn't a punitive. It was a punitive issue before, and now it's in the healthcare setting. So a drug user went from being at the top of the you know country's concern. Everybody there, there was surveys done, much lower now. So a drug user, I could go and have up to a 10-day supply in Portugal, and I'm not going to be arrested for it. I'm going to be treated humanely, and I think that goes to this discussion. It's not really stigma. To me, it's a human rights issue. Um, You know, I just had a light bulb go
2: off during this little exchange here. I can distinctly remember stigma being reduced in like 2000, 2001, 2003, 2004, 2005, 2006, and then there was a first round of OxyContin lawsuits that were settled by Purdue Farmer, I do believe, and the state attorney general got all that money, they blew all that money. And then I remember the recovering community raising the hell a little bit going, or the treatment center industry raising the hell, why why don't you spend some of that money on treatment and addiction? And then the opiate addiction really skyrocketed. And I think that really helped re-stigmatize our illness in the media, in the public's eye. And it was like a, it was a second wave of battle cry, lock them up. Even though they were trying to find ways to help the opiate addicts, especially the white ones, you know, mm-hmm. crack is black, lock them up, you know, dope is white, give them hope, that type of mindset. But it still it drove the stigma out of the, out of the park, you know what I mean? So I think I think that opiate epidemic really helped the criminal justice side more so than the recovery side when it comes to stigma. But I do I do think marijuana's a problem. I think if you treat you got to treat it like alcohol. Take that criminology off the table, unless it's uh, you know like an underage spot, like underage drinking or smoking weed and driving, like drinking and driving. You get that black market out the way, that solves a lot of our issues. These user amounts, you know, you get busted with the needle, that's a felony, you know, and if you're on probation or parole, that's a violation. You know, mm-hmm. you you got to. Decrim reclassify user amounts. I think that's I think that's Absolutely. doable at the state level. Yeah. Mandatory sentencing, you know, that's got to go. You know, you, you probably use that a lot in the courtroom in the past, Paul. Right?
3: Yeah. Well, that I, that is on one of my notes here that needs to be changed right up front. you know, I'm I'm hopeful that we'll we'll see uh, some kind of uh, massive change at both the federal and state level, uh, but. It it needs to be done. You need to get rid of uh, mandatory um, sentencing. But unilateral
2: across, you know, hopefully states and localities and municipalities.
3: It it needs to be done. Um, We already have a first offender law in Virginia for felony possession. It doesn't apply for the second time. We know that relapse can be part of recovery. And uh, if you violate, you go to jail. So the punitive measure is still there and it stays on your record. So... Andrea and I have advocated for quite some time now, Kentucky's model for expungements, because you've got to give people hope. Black and white doesn't make any difference after a certain period of time. That, that mm-hmm. simple possession goes off your record, John. Yeah, yeah. Any nonviolent crime goes off your record forever, it's over. Because we have so many people that are affected by the disease, they get clean. We see them, they're, they're giants in the recovery community. And they call the office and say, isn't there any possible way we can get this charge off our record 30 years later? And the answer is no.
2: Well, there's got to be a, a limit on keeping a charge on a record. Especially the drug law, you know drug, you know, drug conviction. It That's a good move. You know, I noticed the, like right now you're reading the press a lot about the protesters. Just give them amnesty. Mm-hmm. Don't really lock them up. You know, some of them are doing some real damage, some real harm. But these these convicted just the drug users, you know. Why not give them the same break you want to give a protester? And then Carter, he um, what do you call it, when he let the draft dodgers go? He, he gave them amnesty, you know. Give to come get, back from. Yeah, Canada. give these nonviolent drug people amnesty. You know, these are some things that can be done. You know, y'all ever thought about stuff like that?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I, that absolutely, and what Paul's talking about with the Kentucky expungement law. I mean, it. That goes back to the stigma. It precludes someone from getting employment yeah. somewhere. Yeah. It affects the rest of their life. Um, for people that need help in food prog- you know food programs right. like yeah. food stamp, yeah. it's gonna hurt them
2: yeah.
0: um, in every way. But yeah, absolutely. I think,
2: you know got to be more compassionate got to be about more compassionate it, yeah.
0: and that and that's why compassion
2: goes a long way with recovery
0: it does and that's why you'll keep hearing me refer back to portugal because mm. that's what i see right and compassion. i've written about it you see compassion and you see uh portuguese government who you know it was a top down decision it wasn't grassroots it was we see a it's problem it's like the whole country got on board to you know, try to they flipped the whole thing around into the healthcare setting and so you they, see they actually used the,
2: evidence based science and data and took Correct. Away to political hysteria. That's right. in that One night, yeah. Todd, I see you up there with a question, man.
1: Yeah. So Johnny Fab said it was interesting to hear John say the recovery recovery movement has failed. Could you explain or could you expand on what you mean by that?
2: Well, on, on one hand, Johnny, the recovery movement is going strong, and it's you know it's, it's working, it's percolating, it's evolving. You know, when women started out to get the right to vote in 1848, it took them to 1920. That was 72 years. This recovery movement really got going good in 2000, 2001. So we're 20 years into this. But a lot of us had a lot of hopes early on to really get some policies changed, get some funding streams that were able to flow through our state agencies and reach the hands of the authentic recovery community recovery support service providers in the communities so we can get some funding so we can build up the capacity that does account for 50% success rates as well as harm reduction and uh, real prevention. You know, we still holding back on the best evidence-based harm reduction we've ever had in the history of civilization. And we can't seem to get that, you know, common distribute you know nationwide it's like harm reduction is really city by city town by town and it's it's only good for the duration of a politician you know time in office it seems like so and then every time the recovery movement got going good at the top farmer came along and bought off the leadership and splintered us and disenfranchised us so there's a lot of evils out there working against us but the recovery movement's alive, it's strong, but I feel like we should have been much further along, but put it in perspective of you know the women 's rights movement we're probably right on course, you know, so I mean I'm not going to see the end of it. I'm not going to live long enough to see the fruits of my labor but but I'm sure it's going to be there. What else you got done? You
1: know he followed up at the end of that, he said, "You know, I know the type of policy change I would like to see in my lifetime will not happen, but some take comfort. But but I take some comfort in the small changes that we have been able to affect.
2: Hell yeah. I mean, you know, now that we got social media and mainstream media seems to be taking the left-right position on everything, I think there's going to be a big move for the social media. You know, even the stuff Johnny does is just fabulous. But I, I think more consumers are going to get their information from people like us on social media than they are mainstream media. So... You know, I got this, some exciting evolutions going to take place here if, if mankind can survive the next 20, 30 years. Or so,
3: one thing we've noticed, John, in addressing that is that, you know, you're talking about when the movement really started getting traction. And now we have probably two more generations of folks who uh, are identified with the disease. And so you have a lot more families and a lot more people involved and i agree with you i think this is the time to really spearhead the attack to change because we now have a lot more people a lot more families from 14 15 years old to 80 years old we know people in recovery houses and uh, and centers that are you know octogenarians and so that's a that's a substantial number of people that can affect policy and politics.
2: You know, we're all out there oscillating, just waiting for the right leadership to show up and the right glue to bring us all together.
1: Can I actually add to that? You know, like, you're sitting there saying that, and I'm thinking about, like, you know, a couple generations from now, you know, the old way is going to obsolete its way out in a degree. You know, I'm not saying traditions are going to go away, but obviously there's going to have to be some adaptation, you know, so, and I think that's what you're talking about there. Like with you know with Johnny like some of the stuff he does like these new formulas are gonna have to work because if not you know it's gonna get lost because people are gonna tap out they're just gonna you know
2: well I just think the old guard is just holding on not old guard recovery but old guard political bureaucratic systems I mean they're just they're like dying on the vine and, and I, it's almost pathetic to watch them hold on to these old ideas knowing that that you know. They're still in the typewriter era, and we're we're working with laptops. You know, I just it just amazes me what it takes sometimes. So,
0: well, it takes a lot of death, and that's the unfortunate part. I was reading the uh, UNODC World Drug Report came out recently uh, for 2020, United Nations Office of Drug Control, and I believe they said there the report said there's 239 million people that use drugs. This is worldwide not just for the EU or the United States. 35 million uh, have a drug, you know, a substance use disorder. So that's a huge amount of the the population in the world, not just United States, but globally. And there's a huge amount just in this community, in the community where we came from. And why do I bring that up? I bring that up to tie it back to the stigma, because when someone, you know, if someone has a problem, If I want to walk into a police station, I know we've talked about PARI, and we can talk about that maybe a little bit more, but I don't want to be scared to walk into a police police station or have an interaction with an officer and think I'm going to be arrested for it. And you're you're stigmatized because you don't have that safety net of going somewhere to get treatment. And the reduction uh, in Portugal has been enormous you know with users but also the increase in people seeking treatment. Yeah, let me
2: give a shout out to PARI just yeah. just for you know a second. The reason I bring this up I think PARI is an organization of they might have like 500 members nationwide I think last count of police agency or law enforcement agencies that have some type of intervention with people in their community. They can go to their these party member policemen and basically say look i need help and it's funny how the policemen these law enforcement people are quicker to help these people than the very tax-funded agencies in the communities that that's their job in the first place if they had done their job in the first place if they were adequately funded in the first place by the politicians and the funders it may not have had to land in the policeman's lap, because every policeman I know, they, they didn't sign up to be a drug counsel or an interventionist, you know, but I would say, you know, the vast majority of people who need help, they're gonna come in contact with, you know, law enforcement first, right. you know, public safety agencies first, and not so much health agencies. I think that's what I like so much about Portugal. Everybody got on the same page at the same time. They had some growing pains for a few years, but within a few years, they had this beautiful rhythm going, and they were mass-producing recovery, mass reduction in the harm addiction was having in their communities. Their criminal justice costs went by, I think I read, 40 50%. The health care recovery capacity shot up. The death rate, you know, remember Portugal is a country the size of Michigan. Michigan is having, like, over 2,500 overdose deaths and Portugal is having like 30 to 50, and people can blame it on fentanyl all you want, and that's true, that fentanyl is a problem, and maybe Portugal doesn't have a fentanyl epidemic like America does, but that ties back to political will at the congressional letter, you know, why are you letting the Chinese ship fentanyl over here? Who makes money when drugs come in this country? The law enforcement agencies, you know, there's a ton of money in these special interests, and I think these black markets create legal markets for government agencies to grow. And then the next thing you know, you get a lot of mm-hmm. mismessaging and mismanagement. And in the meantime, the real doers in the community, they get stigmatized, you know. And, and it's just it's a vicious cycle over and over and over. But I think our battle, Robert Legg points us out from time to time, our battles are going to be local, mm-hmm. state. At the same time, it's like a pincer movement in a big tank battle, you know what I mean? You get them on two flanks and up the middle. You get them local, federal, and state. And, you know, you got to get everybody on the same page moving forward. You know, I I know there's so much progress to be made, and just simple thinking will get the progress, you know.
0: I agree, you know, and it would be nice to see the, the law enforcement be respected more by the community. And how can you bridge that? you know, level of distrust right now. And I think that PARI, that organization, has done a really good job of that. And, I, th- I mean, I commend them for that. I think every, you know, every, every person that can, you know, as a police, you know, any sheriff, any chief of police can sign up for PARI, then sign up for PARI, because it helps the community. And when you help the community and you let them know that you're there to help them, they will gain trust back.
2: You know, I always said yeah. Wanted, I always said you know? that if you have an addict in the community acting out, clearly they're committing crimes daily to, to feed their drug habit. So anytime you can get an addict in recovery, you just reduced. You know, that's a public safety hit, man. You know, and, and I think the policemen get that. I, I think yeah. the three of us agree because we we intersect with criminal justice, with jails, with law enforcement. I think we can agree. You know, We have wonderful relationships And and by and large We're all on the same page It's like that guy said in that article That that came out a year ago That you were in and Huey was in And here we are Just great messaging Great solutions but yet that one Bureaucrat says well that's like a 30 year process to You know really get the ball rolling No it's not that's your job To slow things down and get in the way You know If half these bureaucrats get out the way, we can solve a lot of problems in a year or two, man. And if these politicians would just lay off their addiction to the special interest money a little bit, you know, we can get some things done, man. What are you thinking, Paul? You got that look? (laughs) Yeah.
3: Yesterday I I had two uh, drug task force agents in in, uh, the law office. And I like to speak to them periodically, not just about the cases we're handling, but also what's going on, how do you feel about things. And their perspective is very interesting. And they are now as sworn officers, most of the guys in task force are senior. They want to get into plainclothes work. Uh, but they are identifying these disconnects uh, that you've talked about. And that is we, we have this overdose prevention program. We, we have a program now that we've started where the person has the ability not to be charged. If you go into a program, the problem is all of these millions of dollars that are flowing in to the community service boards, we can't get service quick enough to get that person help. You can't let them. One of the examples they had is they, they had somebody sign up on a Thursday and by Monday overdosed. We have 27 deaths this year. It's a, it's a record. And so we don't have the infrastructure. But I agree that once we have the police, they, they told me, we understand the plight of these people. We see how addicts live. We see the disaster. We want to help them. Paul, we do not want to put them in jail. If they're using, they're sick, they need help. But they're now recognizing what we've seen for years, John, and that is, you're putting money into this. Can't we just call McShinn and get the person in tomorrow morning? Where is the why why is it why does it take? Why does the money have to be funneled through one agency uh, to get somebody into a genuine uh, peer recovery center like michin, and that's what's happening all over the country and certainly in Virginia, and they 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 had examples.
2: You know, if we could just get a pool of funding for the same day community service providers, recovery Correct. support service providers, you know, Small business enterprises, they can solve the issue if they if they got half the funding a lot of these these care agencies got this, that capacity issue goes away and that wait issue goes away. So, far as I'm concerned, has created a capacity need issue and a wait time issue. You let you know American enterprise do its job in this space you don't have that problem you know walmart they're open basically 24 7 they're open for business they're not open on monday wednesdays and friday three to five you know so we think like that a little bit more you know americans can do it you know but it's bureaucracies and policy that keep us from
3: being our best well but one of the first steps i think and we all agree on this is that we you know, we, for the longest time, we, there was a separation and understanding between law enforcement and the recovery community. And I think now that we have this continuum of the problem, that's in in the crisis stage, they are now enrolled in it with these different programs, and they're seeing it. And they can sit down with guys like me, guys like you, and say, "John, we have this disconnect. We need this." And hopefully, you know, politicians routinely and historically listen to them.
2: Well, Andrea, you got any thoughts floating around over there?
0: I was thinking about, you know, at the start of the conversation, about what can we do even in Virginia, right? Mm-hmm. Or, and just the whole shift in drug policy in general, and was thinking of Dayton. And we, we spoke about Dayton, Ohio, as well, and how they've changed everything around. I uh, was on a Zoom call, what, a month, a month ago, understanding more about Dayton and brought up the fact of the internal possessions, which I was talking with Paul about today, and uh, how that still hangs over someone. That still happens in the in our community. And the person on the Dayton phone call, I forget his name, really wonderful person, uh, presenting the information, I told him that on that Zoom call and he just was floored.
3: That we still charge. That
0: we still charge. and. And it's really, you know, you talk about stigmatizing someone. You have an overdose, and you can be charged for that. So instead of being treated and offering treatment, um, that doesn't mean they're not offered treatment in some way. Maybe it's the law enforcement intervention overdose program treatment. And then what does that entail? It's a lot of things. Um, I see a lot of the, you know, the system sets people up to fail because they can't maintain work, their home isn't paid for, And they have an exorbitant amount of, you know, meetings and all of these obligations to meet, aside from how are they going to to pay for their food, how are they going to care for their kids if they have kids. It's extremely stressful, um, and it's by discretion, right, when they enter and when they leave. And uh, so I I see that as a huge roadblock, and if that one thing could be taken away, that would really help out a lot. It's just one, one, one shift, you know.
2: There's three or four little small shifts that if we were to do, we can basically do them, a lot of cases, by a stroke of a pen, by either governor or president of executive order, but a handful of things. Treat marijuana like alcohol. No more felonies for paraphernalia. No more felonies for user amounts. If you're in a correctional environment and you're an addict and you ask for help, that correctional facility has got to have a, you know, system in place and these programs should be at least fifty percent run by recovering people with lived experience, you know. That's just a handful of simple things. The policemen can still, you know, the criminal justice system, you still got a lot of people out there breaking, you know, more dangerous laws. So they're still gonna have people robbing and killing and, and shooting and whatnot. But take that addiction piece, separate it out, turn that into a health care solution oriented, you know, system of care, not a criminal justice system. And then we can dial down later on on the you know legalization and other things from there. But you gotta fund recovery support service providers. Stop worrying about how you're gonna bureaucratize them and control them. Fund the systems that are getting the best outcomes. You know, stop with the the silly stuff, you know, picking and choosing your buddies on who you want to give money to, you know what I mean? Take the winners, use them, and see if we don't see a massive shift in this country. That's right. And, and the recovery people got to rise up and raise hell. and these family members that are that are out there, they got to join us and raise hell. You know I notice a lot of groups and organizations want us to join them. That's fine, but how about reciprocate? you know let's all work together here. you know what's the enemy? Well addiction is obviously an enemy. Bad policy is obviously an enemy. Mm-hmm. Improper distribution of tax dollars is clearly an, an enemy. You know, there's a handful of things that, that we can agree on and work toward. That's why I like Dan Snyder so much, the people's pharmacist. He's on a mission to create a lobby that's run by the people, you know, no special interest, you know? you know. That's going to be the one. That, what do people really want and need? You know? How are we looking, Todd? Any yeah. questions, thoughts, comments? You look no. happy over there, no, man. No, no, we're sitting good We're sitting, we're good sitting there.
1: pretty, man. Right. There, everyone is in shock at this.
2: You know, shock, and game, all, <laughs> no, right. shock and all, baby. Shocking all, baby. Shock <laughs> and all.
0: Well, let me ask you something. What do you think about COVID, right? Co- oh. we, we've seen what COVID's done.
1: Oh, sorry, I didn't... Now,
2: now that I say that, now we have another comment. Yes. So, um, okay. yes. wait, well, COVID you know. is real simple. Co- COVID can be used you, as a model that's exactly for right. addiction and health care. You know, uh, I don't know why we got – here. like, take this for example. We know damn good and well every, all the addicts. We know where the overdoses are happening, how many a day, who's doing what. But it takes us two, three years to get the, to get the answers. COVID, that day by day, you know, how many cases we got. Where they're at, where are the outbreaks. You got command centers all over America. We should have command centers for addiction and recovery. You know where are the recovery happening, where are the drugs happening. Please keep data on overdoses, but they're really not shared with the public. You know, you know it's like pulling teeth from agency to agency. You know. And then then overnight, they they stopped all policies in America and, and gave trillions of dollars to the communities to try to solve COVID issues. Well, why can't we think of like that for addiction? Exactly you know, right. we, we can damn near eradicate addiction with that type of thinking. So, you know, and every day you hear a new phrase, you know, flatten the curve, you know, well, well we can flatten the overdose curve, you know, mm-hmm. or bend it, you know, we we can... So there's models out there, but I think it's back to willingness, special interest. You know, look look where the COVID money goes, you know. Is that the best use of some of those funds? You, know, you know, I think some is, but I think some aren't. I think some people choked, you know.
3: Maybe we should put a COVID wing in here. You know.
2: Well, I really don't want one. <laughs> but we'll deal with it, you know, when it when it gets here, I'm sure. So, you know, all I know is we're not doing enough you know a lot of talk going on election year coming up i really don't see too many candidates out there that's going to be real champions for us and every time i hear of a champion it's just election promises you know and and you know it seems like we're going to have more of the same for a couple years until something really changes and really turns the corner and and And, you know, you mentioned a lot of people dying. I just don't think people really care. I mean, I think the stigma, the attitude is, let them die. They chose to use. Who cares? Good riddance. You know, I see a lot of editorials. A lot of people write that stuff. And I think at the end of every day, I try to remind voters and taxpayers, you're spending twice the money in taxes you need to spend toward addiction-related issues. You can spend half the tax money if you do more the USA flip. If you mirror Portugal policies in America, taxpayers' burden to improperly mitigated addiction goes down by 50%. Yes, there may be a, a reduction in criminal justice industry, but there'll be an increase in the healthcare industry and you'll have healthier communities and better people. So the benefit will be tremendously a, a big cost savings, a life savings, a healthier community a lot of race race relations will go away cuz the drug law is nothing more than an extension of Jim Crow era laws mm-hmm. you know you can trace a lot of these drug laws directly to racists and political hysteria mm-hmm. you know toward race but yet you know with the black lives movement toward those you know you know or, or maybe once we remove all the confederate uh evidence that it ever existed names and statutes, maybe they can move to the drug laws and policies that are, that were racistly enacted, you know? So, you know, we got a lot of milder going out there. COVID, Black Lives Matter, economic depression coming up. Let's use some of those solutions and activities toward, right. toward addiction and recovery.
0: Well, and, you, know, you know, speaking of COVID, I spoke with Dr. Golau in May. Uh, he's to-
2: the Portugal doctor.
0: He is. The, he was the drug architect. He of was the, the one Portugal model. Of the Portugal model. And I spoke with him a couple of months ago, and specifically, we were speaking about COVID. How is this affecting? You know, how is COVID affecting Portugal? And he said, you know, they have uh, a mobile methadone vans that drive around. You know, so let's let's look at Lisbon, for example. They have unmarked white vans that drive yeah, around I've, every day. I've seen the show. Yeah, you go up, you get your 45. It takes 45 seconds, right? so you have that um, heroin has been reduced on the street because people aren't working there's i mean it's like that everywhere everybody's affected in this country you're hearing about the spike in overdoses they give everybody use the money but they but over there (laughs) they are giving. yeah that's one point but over there there's there's people seeking out methadone and they're ceasing and they're desisting from that
2: well that's good
0: because the options available
2: it was there it was there
0: and so and people know that but here that's the big difference
2: Well, here, Trump gave all the addicts $600 a week to go use. So, you know, we got the worst spike I've ever seen in in, in my my lifetime. I've never seen so many relapses, Um, you know, and and I am glad for one thing. I'm really glad that our jails and our courtrooms have slowed down, taken a look. Is it really more important to get this addict off the street and in the jail versus the COVID outbreak thing? And I think it's turned out in one way a good thing because we just demonstrated we don't need all this jail capacity. And, you know, we got 125 beds in McShane spread out amongst 11 houses. So all of our recovery organizations in the Richmond area, we're we're running at capacity. And, you know, I think our people are doing pretty good for the most part, you know. So I I think we can demonstrate we don't need to lock up quite so many people and, We're getting some good results here. We're sending people going back to court, you know, the court days delayed, you know, but when they go back they got another two, three months of recovery. And they're showing the judges in the courtroom, hey, this is working out pretty good. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, you got your chronic relapses, they're not going to stop, you know, but you're not going to get them all. Nobody's going to get them all. So what else you got, Paul?
3: Did we have another question? (laughs) Yeah, I
1: mean, Johnny had just said, you know, after criminal justice involvement, to carry a record that keeps them from reaching their full potential. He has a two-time, he's a two-time felon with a degree working on administration at a college but cannot get a job at McDonald's with his record. So it's kind of showing the contrast there between.
2: Well Johnny needs to just go to Hollywood, man. They hire anybody there. He's more talented than a lot of them Hollywood clowns. So. Paul, what do you think? I mean, we talked well, about the record earlier.
3: Yeah, I think that Kentucky's model is the right one. Uh, they, it, it was bipartisan. Uh, they worked on it for years. They finally got it uh, passed with a, uh, the legislature. was controlled by the Democrats. Governor was Republican. And uh, if you read it, it's really quite remarkable. And it's not a liberal state. Uh, it's kind of like Virginia. They give them a way to
2: clear their record up, don't they? Yeah, they, and, and you right. you
3: can't even ask somebody after they've been expunged. You can't ask them about what the crime was when you're applying for a job in Kentucky. So I think that's where Virginia really needs to go because we need to get people back to work. You're talking about the unemployment payment. We need to get people back to work. I think all of us agree. When they come to McShane. You, once you go through the program and you get to a house, you got to work to pay yourself. Yeah, you pay, and so that's the way of the world. I think that's the uh, the key is to empower people once they've stayed clean and and they're moving forward. And I see it every day. I had a couple in the office yesterday. Is you know and we're doing well, but if I could just get this off my record, you know, you know, the, the, speaking of work though, you got to realize
2: three fourths of our Newcomer population. I mean, collectively, there's a thousand recovery beds in the Richmond area, you know, in sober living. And, and three fourths of those people's employment is directly related to the hospitality industry or the service industry. And, you know, we, our hospitality industry is probably gone for a while. It's going to be slow in coming back. And they, and that and they got those jobs because there weren't other jobs in our service industry, you know that's going to be reduced greatly because a lot of the the corporate jobs you know who fund the service industry jobs so, you know work's going to be an issue so now would be a good time to start a, you know getting rid of some of those ridiculous felonies that stick with you for life, yeah. and prepare these people you know when the economy does turn around they can get decent jobs as they come back so. There again, the recovery people thinking ahead of the curve. you know, these are crystal ball items we're talking about. Mm-hmm. But yet, unfortunately, you know, the, the powers to be, they're probably thinking of ways to build more prisons and jails. And, you know, I i just, I'm flabbergasted what they're thinking, you know what I mean? It, oh, and here's yeah. another thing, you know, between us, you got 20 years clean, you got 10 years, I got 38. That's uh, that's seventy eight years worth of successful recovery. You would think we'd have a committee somewhere that the politicians were getting advice from or suggestions from. You know, they really don't want answers. They really don't want solutions. The special interests like special interests. They mm-hmm. they want more funds, more control, and they don't they don't care who they exploit. And you know, at the end of the day, and, and, it, and it's playing out in these lawsuits. You know, with the yes. Point settlement yeah. is it, playing out there. Media's not reporting any of this, you know. The media's laid down a little bit. They they do some good reporting here and there, but they're just not consistent. Every every day for five months, COVID been front page. Every day for what three months, BLM been front page. And I'm not saying they don't deserve front page, but addiction recovery recovery should be front page every day. You know, we got that will reduce the stigma, and you know.
3: Well it surprised uh, yeah. me that in, in, in Minneapolis, when th- that where this all started, that it took probably, I think I counted three to four weeks before uh, they recognized that the decedent was uh, under the influence and there was a mental illness and a substance abuse substance disorder. And that, you know he was stigmatized. There was no regard for him at all. Uh, if the officer who, who was charged with the murder uh, obviously worked in the same place that he worked in and probably knew he had a drug yeah, they, problem. Yeah, they knew each other. He knew he had a drug yeah. problem. And so then his life became less worth uh, to to him from the stigma. And, you know, I'm, I'm watching it and I'm like, the guy's got a drug problem. We have a drug problem here. And until we really start to view these cases, John, this way and get behind it and understand what's going on uh, from the medical perspective, we're not going to solve it.
0: I think that's it. You know, Paul's right. It's got to be from a medical perspective, understanding someone, their history, where they come from, what's happened to them, uh, you know, what are their, you know, what mental health issues do they have, if any, all of it. Um, and that, that goes to the brain. You know, I'm also a certified brain health coach and Paul talk Paul and I speak a lot about brain that, health coach? Brain Health
2: Coach. I category. could probably use some of that <laughs> myself, man. She's gonna get you off that
0: gym
2: <laughs> I'm about tired of that, man. I've been doing it a little over a year now, they're getting old, man.
0: But you so. know what? Everything comes from the brain, right? The brain is the most overlooked organ in the body, okay? So people can talk about it all they want, but it's not x-ray like my, my wrist would be if I broke it, right? So if we come from a brain-healthy perspective, like that Dr. Amen talks about um, from the Amen Clinics, um, it reduces the stigma. And you know, his new book, it talks about that specifically, you know, reframing mental illness into brain health. You know, You come from a brain-healthy perspective, and addiction falls under that category. He speaks about the six different types of addicts. You know, they're not all the same. So everybody's being grouped up in the same when they're not. And they're not being treated individually as a specific person.
2: You said, you said six types of addicts. You know, right. you know what I thought of? Black, white, male, female, gay, straight. I just counted off six right there, man. But I know that wasn't what I you were it. thinking, man. See how we think different? Hey, look, we're winding down our hour. And, uh, you know, I just want to be clear this conversation's not going anywhere. And I'm one of those people that believes in you keep talking about it, keep engaging the problems and solutions until the solution materializes. So you may not read about recovery every day or hear about it every day in the news, but at the McSendon Foundation, it's going to be every day. And I hope more people across the country pick up this type of thinking and modeling. And uh, last thoughts before we got to roll. Paul, will roll well, I want to first. thank
3: you, John, for having us here. But... Also, a shout out to everybody out there that's engaged in this uh battle it's it's critical as you well know uh you know i'm i'm talking to police officers yesterday, and they say things are terrible twenty seven deaths we're at a record high and uh you know it's starting to 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 reach yeah, these levels community. where it is really terrible, yeah. and we need to get a handle on it and i hope everybody i thank everybody that's done something about it this year, but make sure you Talk to those people you're going to vote for and see if they're mm-hmm. on your side. That's right. That's right. Andrea.
0: Um, well, I want to thank you also. I, I love McShane. I, I support your mission and what you do and all the thousands of people you help. And um, to Johnny, who was who engaging the most. Yeah.
2: <laughs> as, Johnny person. Fab. He'll be on Friday night, man. These guys are awesome, He's, man.
0: You know, and you said at the beginning, it you know, the stigma of discrimination. And you're right. It is discrimination. And I want you to know, and anybody else watching this, that I will do my best to try and shift that around and change it. I know you do. I know Paul does. We all do. And so if you feel like it's just too much and you don't know what you can give, not just you, Johnny, but anybody watching, you're wrong. What, your, your voice can change. Your story can change someone. Um, so you do play a part in a very important role. And... I'll continue to do what I can yeah. to help shift everything.
2: You know tomorrow night we got Johnny Fab and Bill Stofer on at nine o'clock with Alex. these These are some great people, man. Bill's one of the smartest guys I know in this space. As far as the authentic recovery community service support provider, he gets it. He understands it. Johnny does too. Once again, I want to thank uh, Adam Miller, Liller's Landscape, for help sponsor this event.
1: And then we did have Debbie comment here. She said this is such a powerful conversation. Thank you, Andrea, Paul, and John, your recovery and willingness to continue to help those in dealing with addiction. is so appreciated by this mom.
2: Well, well we're only as powerful yeah. as the mothers and Debbie, and and so, you know, that's where that's I right. get my energy from. So. Mm-hmm. Folks, we're glad you tuned in. Sorry we were late. I hope we didn't have any technical difficulties other than the fact that we didn't have monitors today. I'm glad. I'm glad the internet held up for us, and uh, there'll be more later. Thank you very much.
3: Thank you. Thanks.